Oh Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. In the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. About two years ago, I guess it was spring of 2008, a woman named Lenore Skenazi let her son, Izzy, go home by himself on public transportation after a shopping trip to Bloomingdale's. Not a big deal. He arrived home safely. However, it turns out that this Bloomingdale's was in New York City, and Izzy was nine, and his mother wrote about it in her newspaper column the next morning. And immediately, she and her son became media celebrities. TV, print, internet, the public couldn't get enough of them. To this day, if one types America's worst mother into an internet search engine, Lenore Skenazi comes up first thing. And this despite the fact that she had discussed it with her husband and with her son and given him a subway map of New York City and given him plenty of tokens and given him emergency cash in case he needed to make a phone call or take a cab. Now, I think it's safe to say that Mary and Joseph could never have done this. For one thing, travel in ancient times was much less safe than it is today. People mostly traveled on foot over rugged terrain. They didn't have animals, most of them at their disposal, to ride on. They were walking. Law and order were less consistently present than they are today. There weren't traffic officers to mind people. There weren't uh, widespread police forces. The Roman army's job wasn't to protect travelers. It was to protect the interests of Rome. Bandits were common. Wild animals were possible. Whenever possible, people traveled in groups uh, for safety. And in particular, children and travel were a risky combination. Not just because of the fear of what might happen to the children, but If the children were to misbehave, this would uh, reflect poorly on mom and dad and the extended kinship group. In a a shame and honor society, uh, in a a society based on honor and shame, which is what uh, Jesus' society was based on, this was no small thing. To to be traveling with children and have them acting up or running away um, would have been a big deal, especially in a town like Nazareth, which had maybe 300 people in it. So that's where we find Jesus and his parents in today's gospel. They're all in a, in a, in a um, what's the word I'm looking for? In a dither, thank you, in a dither, because Jesus has run away, it seems. And they say, Mary says to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. Without his parents' knowledge, Jesus had stayed behind in the temple after the annual pilgrimage of family and friends and neighbors to Jerusalem in observance of the festival of Passover. Searching intently, intensely, anxiously for him for three days 
they find him in the midst of a serious and precocious discussion with the learned religious scholars of the day. Now, setting aside for a moment our knowledge of the future of this boy, we come to this text knowing how it turns out. But Mary and Joseph don't, and the people he's talking with don't. Setting all that aside, the context and detail of this story shows us a number of things about the importance of community and ritual for the faith formation, not only of this particular child, Jesus, as a boy, but for any child. Any child. And this text is especially interesting because it's the only passage in the four Gospels that we have that says anything about Jesus' childhood at all. It's the only passage that says anything about Jesus between the time he was born and the time that he undertakes his public ministry at the age of 30. This text tells us a number of things about the importance of community and ritual in the lives of young people. First, the text tells us that Jesus' parents went every year to the festival in Jerusalem. Every year. And while we can't be sure that Jesus had gone with them every year of his 12 years, 12 or 13 years, it's very likely that this was not his first trip to Jerusalem. I think Luke wants to tell us that Jesus was brought up by parents who were faithful practitioners of Jewish law. They were faithful Jewish mom and dad who did what they were supposed to do with the religious upbringing of their children. Second, Jesus' faith community was larger than his parents, which is a good thing. The trip to Jerusalem was a group endeavor. Friends and family and neighbors from Nazareth all came together to go to Jerusalem. They likely camped at night in the hills around Jerusalem. There was no tourist hotels there at the time, and Jerusalem would have at least doubled in size, at least from 80,000 to as much as uh, 250,000. So they would have uh, found themselves camping outside of the city. And you can imagine the kind of scene that would have been. Families, neighbors from all over the Jewish world, as well as his family and friends from Nazareth, would have been there. They might have been singing. Scholars suggest there would have, been a lot of, would have been a lot of singing in these gatherings. They would have eaten together and prayed together and slept together. And you can imagine the kind of effect that this would have on a young person. Not only being there, but in the stories that you would have heard about such gatherings in the past. The whole community was this child's religious community. Third, the elders of the community must have played a pivotal role in Jesus' faith formation. Not only the elders of Nazareth, in the synagogue and in the neighborhood and so forth, but the elders and teachers at the temple in Jerusalem. These elders, friends, relatives, teachers, must have given Jesus the context and the structure for him to grow in wisdom and in favor with humans and with God, given him the safe space 
to grow in self-understanding and self-revelation. They must have given him models. Human and imperfect models, to be sure, but models nonetheless of faithful people struggling to be faithful to the God of their understanding. Jesus would have seen these people modeling their faith for him. There's a woman named Amanda Hughes who wrote a book called Lost and Found, Adolescence, Parenting, and the Formation of Faith, which talks about the importance of elders to our young people. Hughes is also the principal author of our Journey to Adulthood curriculum, which we've been using for a number of years now here at the church, and which has been in use by parishes like ours for well over 20 years. And while she's writing primarily about the importance of elders to teens, I think what she says holds true for how we interact with our young people of all ages, birth to when they leave our roofs and go out into the world and come back when they choose. She has these five things that she says that are important about elders in the church. First, it's important to have not just one leader, but many. I think many of us may have grown up with or seen or heard about sort of the Pied Piper model of youth ministry. You've got to have the one charismatic person who's going to carry it all, or the kids won't show up. Well, that's not really true. It's not good for the leader, him or herself, first of all, but it's really not good for the kids either. They need to see multiple models of faithful adulthood, and they need to see adults working together in working out the faith of the community. We, all of us, have roles to play in that. So not one leader, but many. Second, locate the work in the temple. Like Jesus' core experience here in this passage is in the temple complex. So should our young people's core experience of the church take place in the building. It's wonderful for people to have uh, youth groups and have people over to their homes for fellowship and food and what have you. But there's something about being in the church building itself that kind of levels the playing field. We're all the same here, whether we have a big house or a small house, a comfortable house or an uncomfortable house, we're all the same in God's house. And that's one of the reasons why in our youth program we've at least once a year had a sleepover here in the church. And the kids sleep right where you are. They own the place for 24 hours. And it's an amazing thing, the way they begin to see this place as their place. It's not just the grown-up's place. It's the young people's place, too. So, locate the work in the temple. Third, work in the shadow of the scriptures. Which is to say, the kids need to know the stories. Which means that we need to know the stories of our faith. Without them, we are adrift. We need to know the stories that make up our tradition. And that's one of the wonderful things about our Godly Play program, is that it is based on the story. The kids enter into the story. And I think the mentors would tell you, the teachers would tell you, 
for their own faith formation to enter into these stories with the kids really grows their faith and their relationship with God. So work in the shadow of the scriptures. Know the stories. Fourth, Hughes says that endurance matters. Endurance matters. The elders in our story endured Jesus' questions for three days. His parents looked for him for three days. Now, the number three isn't especially important. What's important by that number is that the elders, the parents, took as long as it took to be with this child as long as was necessary until he got what he needed, until he was found, until he found the things and heard the things that he needed to hear. Endurance matters. And finally, she says, elders have an ability to stay in the present in a way that parents don't always have. Uh, Parents tend to bring uh, the best and worst experiences as baggage to every experience with their own children, especially in a setting where other people might be watching. You know, just a little bit of extra anxiety there. Elders, non-parental adult figures in the community, don't have that same baggage. They can be with young people where they are right in the moment. There's not the same baggage. Even if you've known this child since, since before he or she was born, you can be with them where they are, where they need to be in the moment, without dragging up other baggage that moms and dads and other biological relatives may have a tendency to do. So not one leader but many. Locate the work in the temple. Work in the shadow of the scriptures. Endurance matters. And stay in the present. Those are the gifts that elders can bring to young people. And I think, I know, and I'm grateful for, that all these things are happening right here, right now, in our church, with the children and young people in our programs. Families bring their kids to church Sunday after Sunday and put them in the church school. They support the church school with their cooking, with their driving, with their creativity, with their shopping. All the little tasks that need to be done for a church school or a youth program to happen. Parents do them and elders do them. We have dedicated church school teachers and youth program mentors. We have an active adults supporting children committee which offers all kinds of support, most of it behind the scenes for our children. We have adults in the community who are not in any formal mentor relationships with our young people but who pray for them and for the people who work with our kids. They say hello Sometimes it's hard to get a young person to say hello to you, but if you extend that first olive branch to a teen, they notice. They know that you care about them. Or it might be by attending a fundraising meal, or it might be by buying a young person to do some chores around the house. We've had some um, youth workers raking and shoveling and 
putting up and taking down decorations and so forth. All of these ways and others are ways that our community of elders here at Trinity are supporting the children and young people in our midst. And it's beautiful to see. When our first child was born, it also happened that I was turning 40 and Jamie turned 36 and I was ordained a priest all in a three-week period. And Jamie threw a big party for all of it and we had lots of friends and family and neighbors together on that day, some of whom we hadn't seen in a long time, all kinds of people who were important to us and were going to be important to our family. And as we stood outside uh, under the tent, it was threatening weather, so we had a tent there to give us some shelter. Jamie and I noticed Sam, who was all of three weeks old, getting passed from one set of arms to another, you know, for an hour or two, just every once in a while he would shift position and he would get a new set of arms and maybe the person would sit with them and talk with them or whatever. But for the whole time, he wasn't in our arms. He was in the arms of the adults in the community. And we spoke later that day to one another of having the sense that while we had been given responsibility for him, he really wasn't ours. He really wasn't ours. He didn't belong to us. We were merely stewards of this great gift. And when Lydia was born, we had the same feeling of being stewards for a gift that wasn't really ours. We had been given them in trust. And in turn, we are to entrust them to God and to the wider Christian community that gathers here we entrust them to our families, of course, and to our schools. And as they get older, we try to trust them a little bit, at least, with their peers. Whether we feel comfortable with it or not, it's a fact of life. That they will have peers that influence them as well. And for sure, we have our lives of faith. The elders in the community, we have our lives of faith that we need to nurture. That's perhaps the biggest gift we can give our young people, is our own lives of faith making sure that they're alive and strong and lively. And we also need to offer them our lives as faithful, fruitful, satisfying lives, do our best to live lives that are appealing to our young people so they can look at growing up and say, wow, I think I want to go there. And it's not just about being able to drive the car or have more freedom. It's about that's a life that looks like a good life. It's our job as elders to try to do that as well, to live a life that's appealing. But ultimately, ultimately, it's really out of our control. We do our best and we pray, and then they go the way they're going to go. And I, I think that we can, along with Mary, ponder this mystery. Luke is very uh, careful to point out a number of times in his gospel that Mary sees what's going on with Jesus and she can't always explain it, can't understand it, but she treasures it in her heart. And as elders in the community of faith, that's ultimately 
I think what we do with our young people, we do the best we can and we do well, but ultimately we commend them to God with our prayers. We treasure these young people in our hearts and then we commend them to God. Amen.